0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. First I want to say congratulations. I think even for those of you who have been practicing for a long time, it's just a unique and often unpleasant experience to shift gears from our busy lives into the retreat mode. And in a sense we unavoidably meet all the stuff we weren't honestly acknowledging when we are out there running around doing what we needed to do. So it's, it's a brave thing for human beings to do this transition and come on retreat and put aside a lot of the distractions and then we meet, you know, the accumulated accumulated tensions in the body, and the, you know, built up tendencies in our heart and mind, and 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 our, you know, not so helpful, but still very real attraction to distraction, whatever it might be, as if that's gonna fix us or make us feel better. And then here, of course, you don't have too many options. So, congratulations. (laughs) The first day is close to ending. And there's something, uh, I mean, I always feel this. I was feeling this myself today, um, as I, you know, just because I was able to do more practice today than I normally do. And, uh, just feeling that same shifting of gears and uh, and just the confidence, like that uh, it's almost like a homecoming. Like I know my heart, my body, my mind, it knows how to trust this path, this Dharma path, Buddha knowing Dhamma, Buddha waking up, opening up to the way that it is, to Dhamma. And really beautiful things coming from that, like something as simple as feeling like we belong in our lives. Not that it's perfect, the conditions of our body or the conditions of our mind, but somehow it feels right. We're not in a contentious or conflictual relationship with the moment. And that's really what we're doing here. And tonight I want to just talk about, you know, the essence of our practice, the real center of our practice, this mindfulness, mindful awareness. Because it's just interesting how, from an intellectual point of view, conceptual point of view, when we imagine what we th- what we see as all of the problems in my life, in your life, and all the problems in the world, and the tenaciousness of our habit energies. And then we say, okay, but I got this amazing move, you know. I'm going to be aware. (laughs) I'm going to acknowledge that it feels like this now. And it seems like, You know, it would be hard, I mean, they're getting better at it, but it would be hard to sort of sell it, (laughs) you know, the secret ingredient of life. Sometimes when I've given this talk in the past, I, I talk about mindfulness as the soft power, right? Like, something that doesn't strike us initially when we hear about it, and even when we begin to play with it, you know, and start our practice and bring the attention back to the present moment. Oh, yeah, okay, this is being known. I'm sure you've noticed doubt can really come in, like, how is this going to help? I really don't want to be here, or I really don't want to feel this, or I'm really bored. I'm really sleepy, or I'm really confused. And how is that simple and honest and kind acknowledgement that it's like this now, how can that, well, what, what would that do? And that's the thing, that we have to begin, to some degree, um, with faith. Like, just a willingness to check it out, to see actually what happens when the heart persists and starting again. Okay, this is being known. This is what the mind is knowing. This is what the mind is doing. It feels like this in the body. It's just this experience being known. One of the passages in the Dhammapada, this collection of verses, truly wisdom springs from meditation. Without meditation, wisdom wanes. Having known these two paths of progress and decline, let one conduct themselves so that wisdom may increase. So what do we mean? What does the Buddha mean by meditation? Bhavana. This sometimes translate translates as cultivation or development, developing the heart and mind. We're developing, we're training the mind, cultivating a heart that can be what I mentioned last night, Buddha knowing Dhamma. That sort of simple but powerful wakefulness that can be intimate See clearly, the way that it is. It's just interesting to see, like to check right now. I mean, part of what we're doing is we're developing faith that there is this capacity, that this un- mostly unexplored capacity that we could, that we do call mindful awareness, this wisdom awareness, this. Capacity to see more clearly the way that it is, not conceptually, but directly, immediately, the way that it is. In a, you know in words, maybe it seems a little funny to say this, but to actually meet our life, to meet our experience in a way that we normally don't. Because we're mostly in the story about who I am and what's happening to me. We're in the narration, we're, in a sense, listening to the mind narrate what we think is happening. And we have moments, but then we immediately have a thought about that moment, that more simple moment of knowing. And we're changing that habit. And it takes work, effort. But it's a very particular kind of effort to develop some momentum this continuity of mindful awareness It's really more the effort to remember. A number of you have sat, retreats with Steve Armstrong, and I liked his simple phrase. I'm not sure if he came up with it or it was repeating someone else, but remembering to recognize the present moment. Right? so that, and sense of what is the effort, the sort of essential effort of practice, mindfulness practice where we are remembering to recognize the present moment, or remembering that the present moment is being known right now. And again, that may initially seem sort of feeble, like what's the big deal? But like I mentioned, we're just invited to check it out. Well, let's find out if it's a big deal. This is from one of our Teachers, Kamala and I have studied with Sayadaw Utejaniya, uh, another well-known Burmese Sayada Buddhist monk. I would like yogis to get to the point where they realize that without focusing or paying attention, the nature of knowing is happening. They are too busy thinking they are practicing. They need to step back in order to see what is happening. They need to switch from doing to recognizing, which is why he often and those of us who have been at it for a while understand the importance of relaxation. Because if we don't have some, some you know, substantial or respect for relaxation. Chances are we're misunderstanding the practice, putting too much emphasis on me doing something, as opposed to wisdom recognizing something. Both take effort, right? But one has a much more muscular, self-centered feel to it. I have to connect with the present moment, or I have to get calm, and you know, we learn a lot from those missteps, you know, from effort that isn't helpful. We learn that it hurts, right? We get tight, basically, and then we get frustrated. And then we want to blame the teachings or the teacher or the, our own mind, or we want to blame somebody, the weather, the mosquitoes, the ikini, because it's, we're pretty sure we're, You know, following the instructions, but we tend to swing between over efforting or using the wrong kind of effort, a more self centered, more muscular effort Mm -hmm. to get calm, to see things as they are. Instead of realizing it's a much more nuanced or subtle effort of like, it's recalling that the knowing mind, this capacity for awareness, is already set up. So there isn't anything I have to do to set up that capacity for knowing, right? Can you see that even right now? Do you notice, can we notice right now that nobody here is specifically doing something so that knowing is happening? So we can really, any sense that I have to do the knowing, we can relax that. So then it's much more about keeping it in mind, the knowing, that reflective knowing we call mindful awareness. And then with some continuity, with enough moments, right then that allows for wisdom, the wisdom that comprehends, oh, it's like this, is what's happening. This is how tension, how reactivity comes to be. This is how letting go comes to be but it isn't about me figuring it out because it's just that continuity of mindful awareness that allows naturally allows for comprehension for understanding to deepen one uh, teacher that kamala kamala and i teach with regularly at ims deborah Bretner and i think many others use the same make the same point or use this sort of way of talking about the practice of collecting data, right? So when we have the continuity of awareness, then there's just this very simple but powerful data collection where there's a moment of seeing things as they are, followed by another moment, followed by another moment. And in a way, what what that data reveals isn't so much... What's there in the moment, but what isn't there? It undermines wrong view. It transforms wrong view simply by collecting data in a very simple, non judging way. We're just collecting data and that cumulative data, seeing things as they are, seeing the moment just as it is, seeing whatever's arising, hearing is being known pressure of one step, one foot meeting the ground is being known, breathing in is being known, thinking is being known. Because that simple seeing something is being known, right, it's really in in that moment and the mind learns to trust the integrity of that connection with the present moment. And you see, there's no need for something extra to be there, like me. So the, the more data points, the more natural uh, it is for a mind to operate in the world without projecting self-centered drama. It's just more natural when it has that data, has taken the time to collect that data. So this is our, in a way, it's really our sacred training ground, working ground. We are training the mind, right? Sometimes, um, in a more, I think, superficial way, people talk about the practice as, you know, we just can trust the mind or trust things. And there's some truth, that's part of the instruction we need to hear. But we also have to hear the other half, which is, yeah, but there's also a real training of transformation. The habit of distractedness, of not remembering that this is being known, that habit has to be uprooted with a new habit. Oh, this is being known. Right? So there, there needs to be a respect. And the, and the thing is, sometimes we even have some actual even powerful moments, oh yeah, this is being known. And then it's like, we want to check it off. Okay, I did that, I had a moment where I I was aware. So, But it's really the continuity that's transforming, right? So it's not about once, even though that can feel quite impactful, just a simple moment of awareness, seeing clearly the way things are, can feel quite impactful. But it's really about sort of a whole life of that. (laughs) Living a life of more and more of those moments. Oh yeah, this is being known. This is being known. And there's what really helps is to to train ourselves to notice the thread of joy and mindfulness. Because a lot of what we're noticing is like knee pain, or boredom, or, you know neutral experience maybe and the joy isn't that the sound of the birds are so beautiful they are but it's not the joy is more about how it's really about the way that the mind is relating to the present moment can be so simple so free of greed anger and delusion just a you know, just a few moments of mindfulness, and you'll notice there is a little flavor of freedom about how simple it can be just to be in the moment. And it's really useful, I think maybe even essential for us, to begin to correlate being mindful with some flavor of joy or or release. Because otherwise we won't continue the practice. If, we're, if we don't actually sense some freedom, some joy, some healing, that just naturally is there when there's some mindfulness. Here's a beautiful example of um, that healing. This is from Thich Nhat his book, um, *The Art of the Art of Power*. One of the core practices of mindfulness is to take care of our painful emotions. We can use the energy of mindfulness to recognize the pain inside and hold it tenderly, like a mother holding her baby. The energy of mindfulness does the work of recognizing, embracing. And bringing relief. You may not know what is causing your pain, your despair, your fear, but if you know how to hold that pain with the energy of mindfulness, you get immediate, you immediately get relief. Because the energy of mindfulness begins to penetrate the energy of pain, of sorrow. Imagine a flower in the morning. The flower is not yet open. The sunshine embraces the flower and the energy of the sunlight begins to penetrate the flower. The sun doesn't just go around the flower. The light naturally penetrates the flower and an hour later the flower has opened, has to open itself to the sun. The sun is our mindfulness embracing the flower of our feelings. And it's really that radiance of mindfulness, that confidence of mindfulness, that persistence of recognizing this is here, this is being felt, this is what's showing up here in the body, in the heart and mind. What it's doing is it's really transforming the way the mind is relating, right? It's, It's like to realize there's an alternative from projecting or constructing the story that I'm not liking what's going on or I'm really liking what's going on. So some self-centered drama that is being projected in a sense on the moment, being constructed. And it's a confining, constricting way to be, to sort of identify or cling to the identity, who we think we are in this moment. And to realize that there's a much more simple way, which is this is being known, this is being felt. So it's what immediately begins to drop away, even as we the mind moves in the direction of being mindful, is the clinging to the identity begins to soften as soon as we realize it's just this being known. So that taste of freedom is the having a way, a simple way to begin to liberate the mind from whatever self-centered drama it's been involved in. It's really that simple. I mean, you can just tonight just do some examples. Whenever a self-centered drama comes up, then just be mindfully aware. And notice the mind can't do both at the same time. It can't spin in that self-centered drama and simply recognize that this is being known. And especially if the mind persists at like recognizing what's being known, recognizing what's being known, recognizing the underlying feeling or the different reverberations, it really drops, it has to drop the identification of a me who has something good happening, or a me who has something bad happening, or me who's bored because it's neither good nor bad right now. So it's really, some. this is like a way to get us uh, build the confidence in the mindfulness practice, to really learn to sense the joy and the sense of release in the simplicity of a mind knowing it's like this now. It's just this experience being now. And remember, that isn't requiring any particular object of experience. So sometimes the object may be the totality of the present moment, but you're doing a more open awareness or the field of awareness. What awareness is being aware of is the totality. Oh, being sensitive, In these six ways, five physical senses, aware of the thoughts, aware of the mind, activity of the mind, it's like this now. Or whether it's a very particular object that's being known. Just that sound of a bird kind of cutting in, cutting through everything, and only that, in a sense, is being known. So it doesn't really matter what the particular object is, if it's a very holistic inclusive object of the present moment, totality of the present moment, or a very specific aspect of the present moment, a little throbbing in the knee or a little wormy emotional feeling in the heart, being known. But it's the simplicity of the mind not adding anything extra, it's just this being known. And that's the flavor of mindfulness, it just strips away so much neurotic complexity. And even if there is a lot of neurotic complexity, mindfulness can know that, oh yeah, all of that neurotic complexity is just this being known, right? And it just simplifies it. And that simplification, it's really what's not there, the neurotic self centered complexity, right? That feels good in a very direct, immediate, internal way. And it's really that thread that we learn to trust, and the more we trust it and follow it, at times, for moments, it really grows. And then because of that, it feels so right, the confidence in the practice grows. Because we want to get away from this idea that the practice, the path, is this really messy slog, you know, And that someday, far away, we'll get some results. Because then we get pretty desperate for shortcuts, and you know, or we we get really like totally into the path, but we think, but not now, you know. I'll do a lot of the setup work now, you know. I'll kind of process the stuff I need to process, or. You know, really do a lot of stretching, get to know the different bird calls. All of that is probably really nice. But it's really an avoidance, right? Of like seeing what can come from the developing this continuity. This is again from Saita Utejaniya. Let the mind and body do what they do naturally. It just needs to be seen. That's all. When you don't have clarity, never mind. Just keep practicing. Just acknowledging there is not much clarity. That is right view. And you know what we have to watch out for distraction. And what is distraction? You know, that we can just, you know, a distraction just becomes the practice as soon as the mind realizes it's just this being known. And the cool thing is we don't have to figure out the distraction. We just have to know it in its immediacy. Like, And what is often useful here is, well, what does it feel like here? Because the tendency is to sort of figure out, think that we have to figure out what the problem is, like why I'm distracted as opposed to just recognizing that the distraction, whether it's you know dominated by one of the five physical senses, or it's just mostly mental activity, but what it really is, something is being known. Right? And that's the Buddha knowing Dhamma. Something is being known. This is being known. It's that very simple and non-judging connection with reality, you could say. So be on the lookout for that sense that oh I, I have to know, I have to figure it out, like fixed view of this, but a, from a conceptual point of view. And it, it can look like I have to know whether I'm practicing well, or I have to know why I'm not practicing well, as opposed to simply beginning again, which would be, that's just thinking being known. And if there's a yucky feeling that corresponds with that thinking, that's just a yucky feeling being felt. And again, this will immediately, you'll sense the pleasurable feeling of not having to figure it all out. Like whether I'm a good practitioner or a bad practitioner. Or whether I'm actually confused or not. Because it's so much simpler than that. This is an experience that's being known right now. It's either a physical experience being known or a mental experience, mental activity being known or some combination, but it's this being known. feels like this. Zahida says, trying to get the mind more interested in what is happening is wise effort. Follow your natural curiosity. If a sense of curiosity does not come naturally, ask yourselves, ask yourself questions. This will help the mind stay interested and alert. So there's definitely a place for language or thinking, right? Skillful thinking is thinking that brings the mind to the present moment, helps the mind remember to recognize the present moment. What's the mind knowing? Like that's a thought. That's a very, it can be, a very useful thought. What is the mind knowing? You can just check. What's the mind knowing? What's the mind doing right now? Is the mind tight or relaxed? Is the mind interested? Is there greed in the mind, wanting something to happen? We don't want to incessantly ask questions, but you can find a way to sort of, as one skillful means, to drop questions in. I mean, it can be really simple. What? (laughs) As in, what's being known? What's my knowing? And it really I think uh, brings out this part of practice, part of the mindfulness path, really then, is about humility like that you know we often talk, I mentioned. The importance of relaxation, but then right behind relaxation is this quality of interest. You can, you know, different words, interest, curiosity, but of course real interest, real curiosity involves a sense of humility. And uh, a very, I think, very good definition of ignorance or delusion is the absence of humility or the absence of curiosity, right? Because ignorance is really associated with fixed view, like thinking that I know what's going on. So if we're feeling bored, and there's this arrogant certainty, I'm bored. So then, if I'm pretty sure that that's true, you see how it cuts off mindfulness. I'm not going to be... The mind isn't going to be interested in opening seeing clearly the way it is because I know I'm bored or this is too hard. I want to go home. And a lot of those thoughts, this is not okay. I'm doing really well. Those thoughts are very compelling. They're so seductive. right? So we have a deep, the mind has a deep groove for um the kind of certainty that arises with our cognizing our thinking or you know the meaning that we construct with language. because Dhamma, the way it is is very alive and I think you could even use the word wild right because it, it doesn't lend itself to a story. Like the Buddha once said, no matter how we conceive it, it's always otherwise. Because concepts don't really... it's like they're two different worlds. Another teacher, I forget who it was, said it's like the difference between eating a nice meal and studying the menu. And having a nice meal—that's dhamma because it's very fresh and alive. And and the menu, you know, I mean, even a really nice menu with great pictures and interesting descriptions, it sort of rings hollow, right? It gets old after a while. We are not—we don't feel alive, enlivened by reading a menu. So you can look for this uh, quality of humility in your practice, and just see how that supports, like knowing that you don't know. See, then the mind, the heart immediately gets uh, more interested in showing up to connect. Because that's, we're sort of creating a new allegiance to Dhamma, the way it is, the present moment, as opposed to allegiance to our certainty, the thoughts we have. And we might find that it's even more satisfying. I heard a story once from uh, a Zen teacher about this, you know, just in, in uh, early Buddhism, we call it papancha, the sort of proliferation. And when the mind is dependent on its constructs, its mental constructs, right, then we're, they're never quite satisfying, so we're always patching up our mental constructs. So that's why we're constantly thinking, and then we're thinking about what we thought about, and then we're thinking about what we thought about, what we thought, and it just goes on and on like that, because those mental constructs are endlessly fascinating, but leave the heart empty, you know, not gratified, not satisfied, anxious. So we just keep doing more of the same. And the story this teacher told, which I thought was great, and I, I've been calling it the wish-fulfilling tree, maybe some of you have heard me tell it, but uh, it's somebody's on a hot, hot day is walking along, and they have the thought, boy, it'd be so nice to rest under a big shade tree because it's hot. And then, sure enough, they round the bend, and there's a beautiful shade tree, and they go sit underneath the shade tree, and appreciating the shade and relative coolness, and they think, wow, it'd be really nice to have some cool drinks, some sweet fruit. And suddenly, strangely, you know, there was some fruit around that he didn't notice, the person didn't notice before, and cool drinks, and appreciating that and wondering, thinking, boy, it'd be nice if there were some folks around to hang out with here and chat with. And sure enough, some interesting people showed up and they're having a nice time under the tree, having some beverages and food. And by this time, the person's getting a little suspicious, like, this is a little weird, (laughs) you know. I wonder if there's a demon in the tree. And looking up, and sure enough, there was this fierce-looking demon up in the tree. And then he wonders, I wonder if that demon's going to eat us up. And sure enough, <laughs> the demon eats them all up. And this is such a nice story about our proliferating mind because we are creating heaven and hell. You know, I can't help myself when I walk. I did the little, while you were all were sitting at 6.30, I, I did that trail through the state land kind of beyond the composting area, and it's so nice there, big big trees, and nice little babbling brook, and I can't help myself but thinking oh, this would be a great place for a little perfect retreat cabin, <laughs> and, uh, and I have to blame Laura, the executive director, because she was showing Kamala and me pictures on their land not too far from here where she lives, they're building a little retreat uh, cabin that's up in the trees. <laughs> it looks. It's what immediately creates envy, right? Like, oh, everyone should have a little retreat cabin and big cedar trees or whatever they are, you know, overlooking a nice, you know, view. And that would be perfect. You get a little sitting, you feel a little breeze, there'd be a little bit of movement, Not too much, but just enough to know that you're not in solid ground. It's this endless proliferation. And then the way the Matsu like arises with that is, okay, so I'm going to buy land in the West Coast. Because Minnesota, I tell you, it's nice, but it's not like the Pacific Northwest, you know. So I got to get out here and then I have to fly. You know, and then like the headache of even finding land, you got to find the right place, and then maintaining it, and then paying for it. I mean, of course, you see, this is the demon that eats us up, <clears throat> and then we get eaten up. So we, the mind, then puts puts it down. But then there's another thing. Maybe <laughs> we get into extreme minimalism. I'm not going to have a house. I'm just going to rent. You know, and I'm going to. I'm going to have two pair of Two outfits, only two outfits, you know, and one pen. And, you know, it's sort of like this sort of like, oh, life is messy, so I'm going to... And then that becomes a monster too. Because whenever there's a fixed view a somebody with an idea and the somebody is clinging to the idea, this is going to make me happy, that's actually the cause for... Suffering or unhappiness is that we're trying to solve the problem of unhappiness, but we're trying to solve the problem of unhappiness, you know, this mental proliferation in a way that actually causes stress. But we keep going at it because we don't know another way. But now we don't have that excuse anymore because the other way, you know, we bumped into the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, these teachings that point us to this practice of mindful awareness. This is how it is. This is being known. This is an experience being known, being felt. It's just this experience being known and felt. It's like this now. And so even when some drama, oh yeah, a cabin under these big trees would be sweet, right? That's a thought being known. If there's some energetic leaning forward, some attachment, some craving, That's just that feeling of craving being known. We keep, in a sense, reducing our whole life every moment to this as being known. And it may seem like, oh God, I'll miss my life. Because we associate our life with the drama, right? With the highs and lows. Most of you know the eight worldly wins, gain and loss pain and pleasure fame and disrepute praise and blame the buddha talks about just the being buffeted by these winds and that's kind of what we take for you know human existence we know we're, we're alive when we're getting pushed around by gain and loss and praise and blame and and the rest of it and the, the, the truth is it's better to frame it this way the truth is, we don't know the other way. So we shouldn't demonize the other way. What we do know is what it's like to be buffeted by the eight worldly winds. And when we really start, and we'll see it in living color more here, because the contrast of having a relatively simple schedule, and hopefully, over the days, more calm, more stability, a present moment awareness, is you all notice, it will be more impactful when you get pushed around. You know, you feel you have a nice sit or a nice walking period, and you're feeling more settled and more stability of present moment awareness. And then something, you see somebody's outfit and it triggers a little storm. Like, oh yeah, I'm pretty good right now, but if I had that outfit, I'd be so much better. Or whatever it would be that might trigger something. Somebody's shawl or whatever. And then, but then the contrast really stands out and we go, oh yeah, this is where I, this is the world I inhabit most of the time, being thrown around by these eight worldly winds. Thinking about gain, thinking about loss. Thinking about praise, thinking about blame. Thinking about pleasures, thinking about pains. Thinking about becoming somebody, You know, worried about not becoming somebody or becoming the wrong kind of person. And we really get, okay, I have some clarity what's not the way. You know, living in the world of the eight worldly winds. No, we're not there. I mean, I'm assuming none of us are fully there because we we keep taking the bait, right? But but we're we're developing some some spiritual wisdom, right? We're some suspicion, like I'm suspecting that's not the way. I may not be able to stop myself a lot of the time, but when I when I wake up and I see that the mind is attached, clinging to the eight worldly winds in one fashion or another, I don't pretend that this is helping. Because I notice now I can't help but notice the stress of that clinging, the identification with wherever I am in the eight worldly winds, identified with the pain, identified with the pleasure, identified with the praise, identified with the blame. So then then when we bump Mm -hmm. into these teachings, we're willing to as the Buddha says, Ehipasiko, please check it out. Please look and see. See if it's helpful. Cultivate the continuity of present moment awareness and see if the mind finds a way toward release. That thread of joy, that thread of pleasure, the pleasure of simplicity, Sayadaj Utejaniya says, If you do not watch the mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you are responsible for it. So, it's true, like when we catch ourselves being buffeted by the eight worldly winds, it's true that, oh yeah, that's just nature. But the heart, and this is really the beginnings of compassion, the heart's moved. By that pain. Because the heart to some degree understands it's not necessary to be pushed around, to be tight, to be oppressed by the conditions in life. We really want to learn to trust this compassion like, oh, there's another way. Is there another way? And then we try, we check it out. We start over again. Oh, yeah. It's this being known. And Saida says, it does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It's more important that you understand whether the thoughts are skillful or unskillful, appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. There's some... uh, a friend of mine was uh, did the monastic retreat at IMS a couple years ago when um, Aya Nanda Bodhi, one of the senior uh, Buddhist nuns here in the West, and um, her co-abbess of their monastery in California, Ayasanta Shitta, I think is her name. Anyway, they were reading... Some of the poems of the early nuns, and there's evidently a newer translation, maybe a more free translation. Some of you have read these uh, poems from the nuns at the time of the Buddha. And they have, there's both a collection of the monks and a collection of the nuns, and it's sort of a summation of their practice. So near the time of death, they would have an utterance that's sort of summed up. And then somebody recently translated these in a more free way, and they're quite beautiful and, I think, instructive. So this is um, the poem from the Jaya, The Conqueror. When everyone else was meditating, I'd be outside circling the hall. Finally, I went to confess. I'm hopeless, I said. The elder nun smiled. Just keep going, she said. Nothing stays in orbit forever. If this circling is all you have, why not make this circling your home? I did as she told me and went on circling the hall. If you find yourself partly in and partly out, if you find yourself drawn to this path and always drawing away, I can assure you you're in good company. Just keep going. Sometimes the most direct path isn't a straight line. And here's, I'm going to do a couple more. This is from the poem by Dhamma Dina, one of the early nuns. She who has given herself to the Dharma. For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning I stopped rowing and set my paddle down to watch the sunrise over the eastern hills. Only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise. It was not what I had expected. <laughs> and this is the thing, I think Saida says something like Saida Utejaniya says something like this that insights are always like the characteristic of an actual spiritual insight, it's always surprising. Even if we've really been a good student and studied and know a lot about the map that the Buddha taught, when that experience directly arises, it was always surprising. Oh, everything comes and goes. Oh, it's just this being known. <laughs> I mean, you, we've all heard that phrase thousands and thousands of times probably. But in any moment when the mind directly understands, it's just this being known. That's all it is, it's something being known. It's like really impactful, shocking, and liberating. Here's another one. Patachara's uh, Pata 30 students. Farmers take grain from the earth and branches from the trees. They crack open one with the other and take what's left to feed their families. You are all like unripe grain. Take time to grow then leave the ground behind and let your husks be stripped away. I promise, less is more. So Patachara told us, So we sat on the ground like unripe grain. We gave ourselves to the path, and the path broke us apart. What we feared most is now seen for what it is, true peace, freedom. All that broke apart was the darkness. We had so long been calling our whole world. We had for so long been calling our whole world. And one more. The other, sama. After 25 years on the path, I experienced everything except peace. When I was young, my mother told me I would find true happiness only in marriage. Remembering her words all these years later, something in me began to tremble. I gave myself to the trembling, and it showed me all the pain this little heart had ever known, and how countless lives of searching had brought me at last to the present moment, which I happily married. Can you imagine? We've been living together ever since without a single argument. (laughs) So I don't know how literal the translation is, but I really like them. (laughs) So we have our eight days now, you know, and this beautiful container under the trees with this. Really harmonious community that we're creating together, and you know, a pretty spacious schedule, and these wise teachings that are being passed down from the Buddha, one generation after another, for these 2600 years showing up here on the side of the mountain. And we have all this time, I mean, when you think about how many moments like even in 10 seconds, how many moments there are to be aware, and then how many minutes and hours and days we have. We have a lot of time to be a good student, and to really use our creativity and our kind of uh, persistence, or fearlessness, willingness to start over, not to give up, And just to find our way. It's like to realize, like, whatever's going on for us, however restless we are or ready to be done, like, it's not asking the mind that much to recognize, oh, yeah, that, this is how it is. It feels like this now. Right? So we can just keep collecting another data point, just starting over, collecting another data point. When in doubt, when confused, when you're ready to go home, just collect that data point, okay, now this is being known, okay, now this is being known. And we just sort of set ourselves to that task, and we don't even need to have perfect faith that it's going to really deliver us to, you know, unconditional peace. But we're checking it out. And we know what we do see is like when we do what we normally do, which is to worry or to plan or to fantasize, It's so clear in the setting how stressful that is. You know, nothing, one of the terrible things about getting serious about your practice and doing residential retreats and being more regular in your home practice and learning how to practice throughout the day is you realize that nothing works but the Dharma. You know, how I think it's just a general teaching in spiritual circles that how... The more you get into it, the more narrow the spiritual path uh, becomes. I think this is what that means. It's like you realize the more sensitive we become, we realize that all our ordinary past strategies are stressful. I mean, we still do them. Like, you know, read too much news or eat too much food or use too much sleep or, you know, all of our avoidance and distraction techniques that they get worn away because there's a growing, deepening wisdom that knows it doesn't help. And we need to, like one of the uh, aspects of the practice is this integrity that I'm going to live, I'm going to practice according to what my life has taught me. Not what I want to be true, but what actually has worked, and what actually doesn't work. And I'll just see where it takes me. That That's kind of a real definition of being a student of the Buddha, is this sort of pragmatic approach that we're really students of our direct experience, and wherever that takes us, right? Because it really shows us what works and doesn't work, just paying attention in this way. It's not like we're trying to be a good person. It's just that being a bad person just doesn't feel good. (laughs) You know, gossiping or lying or taking what hasn't been given or, you know, thinking that sense pleasures are going to really take care of us in the end. The more we look carefully with compassion, the more we see, no, it's really not going to do it. And we find our way that way. And of course, we're inspired by others, people on the retreat or teachers, you know, who show us the way. Oh, yeah, they've done that. And when I really tune in, they seem to know more about how to be at ease in the middle of their lives. So, maybe there's a way, maybe this is the way this path of mindfulness. So let's just take a moment, let go of the words, just sit in silence for just a few breaths. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we have about 30 minutes, and then uh, I know a lot of you might be tired, but see if you can come back at 9 o'clock. We won't sit too long tonight. We will do the chant that's on the other side of the uh, Refuges and Precepts, and then maybe we'll sit for about 10 or 15 minutes tonight. So have a good walk. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.